Hello again and welcome back to the Methods Matter podcast from Dementia Researcher and the National Centre for Research Methods, the show for people like me who didn't pay enough attention during the methods lectures or for those who did but are looking for a new take on how to put it into use. In this series we'll be looking at five different research methods with an expert from the field and a dementia researcher that has put this method into practice. My name is Leah Fulliger, I'm a PhD student at the University of Southampton and I research dementia care and faecal incontinence. This podcast came about when I got to my research methods section of my PhD thesis and realised, oh gosh, this is hard. So now I'm searching for answers. Today we're stepping back into the past, so get your time machines ready and your grandparents on speed dial because it's all about qualitative longitudinal methods. Helping us today are two extremely well-qualified guests my imposter syndrome kicks in round about now. <laughs> in the expert corner is Dr. Karin Hughes from the University of Leeds. Karin is the director of the Timescapes Archive, editor-in-chief of Sociological Research Online, convener of the EVA Qualitative Research Methods and a senior fellow for the NCRM. Hi Karin, thank you for Hi, joining Lena. us again. You're, you're welcome, I really enjoyed last time, looking forward to today. Fantastic, it's great to have you back. Thank you. And our hands-on researcher for today and unofficial expert is Professor Andrew Clark from the University of Salford. Andrew has completed research on a wide range of topics, though he is particularly interested in three areas, neighbourhoods and communities, dementia and innovation and creativity in social science research methods. Andrew also lectures on research methods, so we're really lucky, really, really lucky to have two experts today. Hi, Andrew. Thank you for joining the show. Hello, thanks for, thanks for asking me. So thank you both again for joining us. I'm sure we won't have any blood spilled. So what do I know? We begin as ever with the so what do I know section, where I give a summary of what I understand of the method we're discussing, which of course today is qualitative longitudinal methods. And today I'm feeling confident. I know I don't sound it. <laughs> So when I think of longitudinal qualitative methods, I'm thinking of measuring things and experiences and outcomes that happen over time. So um, in society, that could be changes in attitude for an individual. I think that could perhaps be their health or how a disease progresses or, or how their experiences changes due to time. Oxford Bibliographies tells us that longitudinal research refers to a family of research methods that involves obtaining repeated measures of variables from the same group of individuals over an extended period of time. Data are first collected at the outset of the study and then may be gathered repeatedly throughout the length of the study. Karin, could you perhaps set me right and bring that rather formal description to life and introduce us to this method? Yeah, um, when we're talking about qualitative research methods, I think I would take issue with the idea of measurement and that we're measuring something over time. And I'd use the language um, that Bren Neal uses, Professor Bren Neal, um, who does write the books on qualitative longitudinal methodology and use the language of inquiry. So um, it's, uh, yeah, it is absolutely, it's a, it's a group or a family of research methodologies. Um, it's a, a very distinctive form of temporal inquiry. So it's um, methodology that's driven by um, and attends to temporal questions and temporal concerns, such as social change, change over time. Um, and it aims to shed light on those processes of, of change um, for individuals and groups and provide explanations for how and why those processes are unfolding in the way that they are over, over whatever temporal period that is within that analytic frame. So it's very qualitative and it'll draw on that traditional canon of qualitative research methods, such as interviews, observations, um, ethnographies. Um, and, and I'm hoping that Andrew's going to talk about some of the creative methodologies that he's interested in as well um, around that a little bit later. These sorts of concerns of those qualitative um, methodologies um, are in additionally enhanced by this attention to, to time and, and change. So inquiry rather than measurement and absolutely a form of temporal analytic engagement. I hope that helps. That, that helps me actually because I think of longitudinal methods and I, I 
suppose I instantly think of more quantitative things and I don't really know why and that would be why I went for measurements instead of inquiry so I know that social scientists typically prefer longitudinal research over cross-sectional research designs and do you have any sort of explanation as to why? Um, I, I think that if you're trying to understand change, then what you are, you know, that you do simultaneously a form of cross-sectional analysis in qu qualitative longitudinal study. Obviously, you're going to find out what's going on at a given point um, in, 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 my, in my study, a given moment um, in terms of my data collection. So you look across the data that you've gathered at that, at that moment, and that might be a whole variety of data, interview data. Um, with participants, observations, discussions with gatekeepers or key stakeholders. But then you bring that into dialogue with um, data that you've gathered at a, a different um, a moment, at a different, um, different point in time. And so it's trying to then um, observe differences and different ways. There's a host of different strategies around that. Trying to understand what the continuities are as, as well as the differences. And I think that that's a real challenge for qualitative um, longitudinal methods, because there have been uh, discussions around how far it is a series of cross-sectional moments, as opposed to, um, again, using the language of, of Bren Neal, walking hand in hand with people um, over a continuous period. That's funnily enough, what I was about to say is that it sounds like a, mm. a series of cross, cross-sectional yeah. sort of analyses. Um, so that's, yeah. yeah so, then you're, so then the challenge is how do we build in continuity? Yeah. How, how do we engage long, properly, longitude, properly in a longitudinal way? So would you say it's a hard method to use? Um, I think that, that in all qualitative research, there's a longitudinal component. We're always going back in time to understand what other people have observed. We often draw on historical data in order to build comparisons or analyses. Um, and, um, and we always talk in a temporal way. You know, we try to identify what is very distinctive about this particular moment in time, why we're researching these people in these ways um, at, at this moment. So I think time and temporality is a fundamental character of any um, research. And I think that people often struggle mainly with trying to clean away um, temporal effects rather than engaging with them. So I think qualitative longitudinal methodology is incredibly powerful, a means of engaging precisely with those temporal um, um, characteristics of, you know, of social life. Um, and we are, after all, temporal beings. So it, it's, it's a, a really important methodology in that respect. It depends on the sorts of claims that you want to make on how continuous your engagement has actually been. And of course, there are a number of studies under timescapes, um, and I would direct people to the outputs and publications section on the timescapes archive website, because that captures 15 years of people's discussions and debates and reflections on, on how and in which ways qualitative longitudinal research is in, indeed um, longitudinal. It's definitely like um, time travel then, especially for some reason the word temporal always makes me think of like time travel and science I, things. <laughs> I, I, you know, I just um, threw it right back at you, Leah, and, yeah. and, and, and ask how are things not yeah you know yeah. you know we, we've spent a period of time already um you know in 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 this podcast there's going mm. to be we're at a different moment at the end of it as to the beginning you know we're just having to think about temporal scales so that's another challenge for qualitative longitudinal research of what are the sorts of temporal scales you're engaging at because you might want to track somebody over the period of 24 hours or, for example, in the Seven Up series, um, I, I don't know how many decades that they've been they've been tracking people. So, thinking through temporal scale is another question that people have to engage in in qualitative longitudinal methodology. That's definitely something for me to think about. Um, Andrew, is there anything you'd like to add to that? Um, gosh, I think uh, I was listening to um, kind of 
Pope Lauren was articulating what, what we refer to as QL. Um, yeah, and I do, I agree with what you've been saying. I think quite often we, when I come in to QL, I've, um, this question of time has always been something really interesting. Um, and I, I actually kind of shy away from a language of tracking people in part because I think it's got certain connotations, but definitely that idea of wanting to follow through time. I suppose what I would add is there's, there's talk of this idea of time travel is really interesting and QL is not just about looking back into the past, but also for me, the real um, exciting bit is following forward, you know, walking forward into the future to mm. use Neil's metaphor is the other bit I would add. Um, is it a hard method? Uh, it's such an interesting question. Um, you know, we could spend ages debating is QL a method or actually an approach or even an attitude to understanding, you know, research, what we do. Um, I don't know if it's necessarily hard, but I think it's certainly not straightforward. Um, and I think sometimes QL can, people can be put off by the practicalities and oddly enough, the time that something takes and the amount of resource and perhaps effort that's involved. Um, so perhaps not so much hard, but certainly um, complex. That's one of the things I would have thought about, about qualitative longitudinal methods is the sort of the, the time and effort it takes in a way. Um, but staying with you, can you tell us how you've used this method in your own dementia research? So I've, I've always been interested in QL. Um, I've always been a kind of admirer of the Timescapes projects and the debates and conversations. Uh, and the um, we were fortunate to receive funding from the ESRC and NIHR to uh, run a five-year research project, understanding how neighbourhoods are experienced by people living with dementia and also how uh, neighbourhood settings can perhaps provide better support. And we were really interested in trying to understand neighborhood life, be that kind of ideas of social connection, social networks, but also the physical and the material places of, of what a neighborhood is from the perspective of people living with the condition. We were also interested in getting beyond a snapshot in time. We didn't just want a, a one-off understanding of someone's experience of the place where they lived, for example. We wanted to try to follow through over a a period of months and we were fortunate over a period of quite a long time how people's experiences changed but we also wanted to understand not just how an individual's life changed but also all the messiness and the complexity of of the things around them how that also changed so we were also interested in how what we sometimes refer to as kind of context changed as well so in my own research we were interested in how people living with dementia experienced their neighborhoods and how that changed over time, but also how their neighborhoods changed over time and also how some of their locally situated social networks also changed over time. So we deployed a, a QL approach. Um, I have to say that uh, it wasn't just me all on my own. There was, uh, I worked with an amazing team of researchers um, and colleagues, uh, you know, I. I feel like I really want to name check them and I hope that people listening will forgive me just to say that, you know, people like Sarah Campbell, Kayandi Manji, uh, Elzana Odzakovic, uh, Richard Ward and, and John Keady, you know, we came together as a team effort and actually the idea of a, a team effort in qualitative longitudinal research is perhaps something I'll end up reflecting on a bit more over the course of our discussion. Um, but we undertook this research in England, in Scotland, and also in Sweden. So alongside a time component, we also wanted to try to understand an international um, component as well. Um, so in terms of using the method, we, uh, we devised um, a series of different sorts of methods or techniques to try to understand people's lived experience of the neighborhoods where they lived. Uh, and we took neighborhood really from a very open idea. We started from, you know, to put it grandly, a, a constructivist view of what a neighborhood was. We didn't decide in advance where a neighborhood boundary might be. Uh, and we undertook some social network mapping, some participatory network mapping to try to understand something of the social connections that people have. We also undertook some walk-in interviews uh, to try to understand how their lives might be emplaced within local environments. 
Uh, and then we also undertook some home tours as well uh, to try to understand something of how the home is also part of people's everyday life. Mm -hmm. The network mapping and the walking interview methods were probably the two bits that were the most formalized part of our QL approach because we repeated both of those methods uh, after around about 12 months, in some cases after 15 months, in order to try to understand something of the changes that have gone on. So in a way, yes, we were, um, we were tracking or following people through time. But what we also did was a whole series of additional interactions. So for me, I think QL is also about re-engagement with people, not necessarily using the same formalized or dare I say formulaic method to gather the, you know, it's not about gathering data at time one and data at time two to do some, some comparison of what's changed and, and what stayed the same, but it's also about dropping in and, and getting updates and kind of re-engaging with people. And I think in a dementia context, that was absolutely crucial, um, both to understand the lived experience of the condition, but also actually to allow us to do some of the more formal QL activity as well. Yeah, that was going to be one of my questions actually, is just, did you have to have any sort of special considerations or adaptions um, when using this method in relation to dementia or neurodegenerative diseases? I think you've always got to adapt your methods and your approaches to the particular context of the individuals and groups you're working with. When it comes to dementia, I think perhaps the most the most obvious things to think about are twofold. One is around um, memory and cognition. We know that one of the symptoms of dementia are, uh, challenges perhaps with remembering things, with memory loss. It's not the only symptom as you know, as listeners will be aware, but when you are uh, engaged in a method that is about either trying to encourage people to think back about what has changed, then there are certain um, ways of thinking about how you're going to do that in a ways that are kind of authentic and also um, ethically appropriate for everybody involved. And second, when it comes to QL, this idea of following people through time means that as we return to people, you, we couldn't assume that people would necessarily remember that they'd been involved in the project. They couldn't necessarily remember us as researchers. And we also can't assume that they will necessarily remember some of the things they told us about. And so what that means, I think, is that it, it raises certain questions about how you um, remind people, maybe of things that they've told you about, uh, but also how you as a researcher perhaps are um, in possession, really privileged to have a collection of knowledge about somebody that, that they're in a way perhaps um, not as familiar with at the point that you then meet them. There are other um, issues to think about. Um, you know, another symptom of dementia is sometimes difficulties with um, physical activity, with walking, for example. And so our walk-in interview method was something we really had to think about. Um, of course, we were really interested actually in those changes as well. We were really interested in how somebody's um, experience of dementia had changed some of its impact on their everyday life and their activities. So some of those changes weren't just about, these are not challenges for the method to overcome. These are actually things that we were really interested in also trying to understand. And then that's before you start to think about some of the issues around uh, consent, around ethical engagement, around, um, ensuring that people are, are happy to continue to be involved in research over a longer period of time like this. So it sounds like that one of the reasons QL is, is so useful in dementia research is those, those changes, like you mentioned with the walking interviews and, and seeing how their the daily life experience of their dementia progresses. So it's definitely that. There's definitely the opportunity to understand some of those changes. And also, as we came to realise over the course of the research, some of the things that have stayed the same. And within that, the other thing that we also came to realise was really important is often the changes that people experience or the changes that people live through aren't just about dementia. And the other thing we learned through QL is all the other things that are also in a state of flux. Nothing is constant forever. It's also about being really mindful of how we understand what is changing and why those changes have come about. And one of the things we, you know, that really was pressed home to us is that the change isn't necessarily because of dementia and changes in the condition. Often the changes that we observed and that people experienced were because of lots of other things aside from the condition that they've been diagnosed with.
the the thing that's popping into my head straight away is the amount of data you must produce in in a, a QL study. I, I wouldn't even know where to begin <laughs> handling that data and, and, and everything. Uh, so now we have a description of what the method is and an example of how it's been used. Let's get into the detail and help anyone who is new to using the method. In this segment, I'm going to ask some quick, straightforward questions to both guests on how to put this method into practice. Cara, the first one's for you. How should someone prepare? Um, again, it, I think this, this is really interesting and um, uh, this sort of question comes at all scales always, um, which is what, what, what should I do and how should I do it in research? And it all depends on the question. So um, what is it that you're trying to actually achieve through the research itself? What sorts of um, insights are you trying to gain over which sorts of periods of time? And so the corollary of that is really, what is your question? And your question determines what sorts of claims to knowledge you're trying to gain um, access to through your research process. What do you want to be able to say um, at the end of it? So in the very first instance, it's about having absolute clarity about your intentions um, for the research. And that will always come into dialogue with the sorts of pragmatics Andrew mentioned um, about how time consuming things are. But also, I think what's absolutely critical is reflecting on the capacities and abilities of the participants and the constraints that they experience in terms of participation with your research. So that dialogue between um, a sort of an ac academic set of aims, my research question, and who am I trying to speak to? What is it that I'm trying to achieve? How might that be possible? What are the constraints on that? I think that those are epistemological reflections and what they do is give you insight into you know, your, your study population, into the questions that you're trying to ask. So, being very clear about your question, keeping a really, really good field of note diary on the sorts of decisions about how you're going to put your research um, in, into, into play. And having that very clear sense about the, the pragmatics um, of your research. Um, and then um, being very familiar with existing research and data in the field. And I think that those three things will really help you set up and be clear about what is and isn't possible and why you are doing something and why you're not doing something else. So analysis starts from the absolute outset. And, and how important is the baseline? Again, in qualitative, you're using a sort of a language <laughs> that is ahistorical. It's as if, you know, I, that, you know we're going to take it from here. Well, what is here? What is when? Now, when you get the funding, I mean, anyone who's got funding knows that eat from the sort of like letter that you get, yes, you've got the funding, to the money arriving in the institution's account and then recruiting the people to the study. You can be talking months and months at a time and, and things change. Anybody who's doing anything policy related knows that a period of eight months in, in academia okay, things might not be quite so different. In policy, you might be looking at a completely different policy landscape, a different government, a different economic moment. You know, COVID's hit, we've had a recession, so and so forth. So this idea of baseline is, is um, more a case of trying to capture accurately or in as much detail as possible um, that situation, that context, and to use that, that language of, of context. Baseline but, is more of an initial context. But you're also in QL and in qualitative research, again, always you're trying to engage with the histories of things. You know, how have things come to be? What are the conditions through which this situation has been made possible? That is our key question in qualitative research. Why are things like they are now? You know, and you're, <laughs> so you're asking people that. I think Andrew's contribution as well, that it's a, QL is a prospective method. Um, namely, you know, how, are, how might things be? What are your anticipations for the futures? 
um, and, and where do you think you might be? That that is something that's, again, very distinctive in QL because our intention is to go and find out, uh, you know, a, a future moment. We're, we're presuming that there's going to be a moment at which um, we're going to be able to speak to people again, but we're absolutely providing methodologically for those sorts of futures. And I think that's something that um, is in the bones of QL methodology, that provision for that future moment of investigation and engagement. And what factors should you consider when trying to recruit? This, again, that's an interesting one because as Andrew's research is demonstrating, um, not only might people be literally incapable of engaging with research, but they might not be there. I actually think Andrew would be a much better person to respond to this because he can tell us what did he do. I'm trying to think whether there is a difference in recruitment for QL work compared to recruitment for qualitative research more broadly. And when it comes to the, the start of recruitment, first of all, I think Karen's right. There is this, there's a kind of fallacy in thinking, okay, so we will recruit start to get our baseline data. And I think there's a real, um, I think there is still a real legacy actually um, from some researchers to think we must get this baseline. You know, and I think there's a real tension and sometimes I think there's perhaps a, a real emphasis placed on recruit as many people as possible right at the start because you need a good baseline. And if you don't get that baseline, then the rest of your project is going to fail. And if you have a five year study, then if you mess it all up in the first six months, you'll never be able to do it again. And I think one of the things as I think back, one of the things I think about is to be less not to oh, not to place too much emphasis on how many people to recruit. So I think, how do you recruit? My response would be the same way you would always recruit for qualitative research. It's about being able to explain what your project is about to people, but also being able to explain why a QL approach is necessary. What is it about change over time that you're really interested in? Um, I think recruitment is also about establishing some relationships with people you know really early on it's about establishing relationships with the research and potential participants and people who are around to support participants that's family and friends and um, people who maybe run you know organizations or drop-in centers and support centers it's about having a kind of community to support the research and through them is when you hope that you can start to recruit individuals who will um, be kind of as enthused as you are about the project and see the worth or the value of contributing to a research project that might actually be a bit different to the kind of project that people are very used to. One of the things that our researchers spent a lot of time doing was explaining to people that we didn't want to turn up and do a survey, you know, with people, which is very common, you know, for people living with, with dementia, that we wanted to follow them through time, that we wanted to come back and meet them. Uh, and so when it comes to how do we recruit, it was you know through lots of visits to different groups. We also had, um, we, we adopted quite a participatory approach to our recruitment. So very early on, we established a, a group of people who were, who had direct experience of life with dementia to support us to kind of design the study, to think through our methods. But what that was so important for were to be kind of local champions for the work. So we asked these individuals if we could go out with them and meet their friends and other people who they knew. And we asked those individuals who were living with dementia to introduce us to other people and also to introduce the research on our behalf. So it was also about a much more participatory approach to, to that recruitment. Um, you know, and the other thing to think about when it comes to recruitment is perhaps try not to think about how many people you want or how many people do you need. It's actually what data do you want? What information do you need? What evidence do you need in order to answer your research questions? And you might be able to get that information from a, you know, three or four people rather than 40 or 50. Uh, it's all about thinking about the material you want. The other thing to remember, of course, is that when we, when we recruit in QL or certainly in, you know, in the projects I was involved with, it wasn't about recruiting individuals. We were in a way recruiting for experience, we were recruiting to engage in interactions and that repeated interaction, that kind of building up of a, 
of a knowledge base, of an evidence base, if you like. It's that collection of stories and a, and a collective history of individuals over time. The recruitment really um, takes second place to, to the interactions. So the question, yes, how do you recruit is always vital, but actually how do you continue to maintain relationships? How do you continue to interact with participants becomes just as important as that initial question. I think you've sort of um, touched on the next question as well, is, is how important is it to consistently repeat the information collection method? In qualitative longitudinal research, what you are able to build into your research methodology is the potential to ask a whole range of different questions. So, for example, under the Timescape study, um, from the outset, a study that I was involved in under the whole programme of research um, with Nick Emmel, we were looking at midlife grandparents um, on, in low-income contexts. Um, we were able to um, anticipate four rounds of data collection. That was something that we had planned in, in terms of our, our research design. And we organised those four rounds um, thematically. So from the very beginning, we wanted to understand about them in their, um, as in their family contexts. And we wanted to understand about grandparenting, how they grandparented and perhaps how they themselves had been grandparented by others. Um, and um, we, we wanted to understand about their future orientation so that they're aspirations, their ambitions, and that was a second round of interviews. We wanted to understand them in terms of their locality, for example, um, and experiences of, of low-income life, and that was a, a, an, another round of um, interviews. So that was the, our data collection was arranged at the questions that we asked weren't the same. We were going back and what we were doing were building much more complex pictures about people's lives, how they understood their lives, how they um, anticipated their lives would um, progress, um, their histories, their explanations of families and so on and so forth. So we were actually able to build in um, quite different sets of questions, um, even at the same time as we were also building in the possibility for certain sorts of comparisons. So again, it's this idea of, of continuity and change that building those opportunities in um, in qualitative longitudinal research, I think are much more um, powerful, much more possible through a QL design. Andrew, some questions specifically for you. The first one I imagine is a very loaded question. How do you cost a study like this? The short answer and the flippant question is really carefully. <laughs> with great difficulty. <laughs> and, and with difficulty. So how do you cost it? First of all, I think um, if if you are fortunate enough to have a, a good research development department or someone involved in your institution in financing bids, it's so important to talk to them and get their expertise. I think in my experience, what you can't do is just think, OK, well, I just need to cost for, you know, three rounds of interviews and that will do. So it's kind of three times the cost of one interview. I think it's so important to cost in researcher time. I think it's so important to cost in time for preparation. It's important to cost in time for analysis after each round. I think sometimes the, the rush to go about gathering as much data as possible means that sometimes researchers kind of turn into data collection machines. You know, it's almost as though a research project could become like a, a data production factory. And I was really conscious with our project that, you know, after we'd finished our first round of data collection and it was, you know, in three countries and there were three different methods. As soon as that was over, um, the temptation to then think now we must get back into the field to start data collection all over again, because otherwise we're going to run out of time. means that sometimes the temptation to forget about the analysis bit is, you know, high. And analysis is essential. And it, it is a resource. It takes the time to think. It takes time to work through your material. Um, you know, the the you are in my view, you're not going to get much richness in a in a repeat engagement if you haven't taken the time to work out what you think you've understood 
in your first round. So it's about costing that. I think it's about costing if you're able to just for the amount of time to prepare your data to um, to use a really awkward expression to kind of clean your data set up. You know, what are you going to do about anonymizing your data set? How are you going to store it? Where are you going to store it? These are all things that um, take time to think through, but also kind of have cost elements as well. And the other thing I suppose to think about is to to cost through how you're going to maintain relationships with people so you can continue to re-engage with them. So this is not just about costing time, but we ran a range of um, events now when it came to costing, we called them dissemination events because we thought we'd have finished the research and we would just be telling people what we'd found out. And in practice, what we found is that these weren't dissemination events. These were ongoing events to kind of sense check some of the things we were finding. They were events for people who'd been our participants and their family and friends to come along and in a way celebrate the achievement of being a part of a research project that goes on documenting people's lives but also to ask new questions of what we'd found, that we ran um, activities and produced outputs collectively. So we worked with people living with dementia, not just to give presentations, but to work on different sorts of um, outputs. So we worked with uh, illustrators to produce comics and magazines and things. And all these things that you would traditionally cost as dissemination activity or impact generating activities, were also opportunities to try to understand a bit more about the lives that we were trying to understand. So I'm not sure how helpful that is in terms of what you cost, other than to actually make sure you don't just cost for how many interviews or whatever you think you're going to be doing. It's much more complex than that. If someone is mining data or using an existing data set to perform this research, are there any particular considerations? I think Corinne is far better than me to answer this. I think what I can talk about is our, our experience of preparing material to, to be archived for future researchers. And I think the most important thing, and this comes up a lot in qualitative research, is to be really mindful of the loss of context. You know, by, as it were, cleaning your data, anonymizing it, making sure that it, it conforms to all those quite appropriate ethical considerations are you in a way kind of um are you wringing the life out of the data that you've collected in my own work where we understand uh, where people live and their friends and their contacts by changing the name not just the names of people but we change the names of uh, organizations of places then what is then left for a future researcher to come along and look at and it doesn't just have to be future researchers. I think even you know, us as a research team, when we were returning to our data we'd already collected, we realized you can't rely on your own memory to work out what something meant. So it's again, really important to keep a clear record of how you're preparing stuff for your own archiving, never mind somebody else's. And the other thing I'll say, um, when we think about this longitudinal work, particularly in a dementia context, is that we can't, rely on on narrative as your kind of guiding principle what i mean by that is i think we kind of assume that someone will tell a linear story this happened that happened and then in the future something else will happen certainly with the people we talk to it, if communication is perhaps one of the symptoms of dementia it can become difficult to get a linear narrative. And then when it comes to archiving the material you've got, unless your researchers have done a really thorough job of providing additional notes and explanation for some of the stories that you've managed to gather, then in the future, it can be really hard to piece together the, the chronology, you know, the temporal logic to what's being said. So it's also about making sure you've got really good notes. How do you deal with attrition or prepare for that? So I think that this is such an interesting point in the discussion because this is the point at which um, um, that blurring between um, qualitative longitudinal and qualitative secondary analysis really comes is, is foregrounded. Um, and I would say that qualitative secondary analysis absolutely builds out of qualitative longitudinal research methods. That, you know, that that is its sort of um, bones, if you like, methodological bones. Um, in terms of um, 
um, anonymization. Um, and Andrew said, you know, that so that it is about, you know, how far might we strip meaning out of our data by changing names and removing contextual details. There were some really um, straightforward strategies that might, people might find helpful. So um, always having very clear keys. So if you're anonymizing people from the outset, having a very clear set of, um, un, you know, all the unanonymized um, details being held alongside the anonymized sets. Um, and also having two copies of your data set. So one which is, is, is unanonymized and one which has, has, has been anonymized. The second thing, just picking up on what Andrea has just said, is around the context of the research. So, so often in qualitative um, research or in social sciences research, we talk about context as meaning that social context as somehow that exists separately um, from the actual research. But as everything that Andrew has said today um, indicates, it is that the research is about establishing a whole range of different sorts of relationships. It's profoundly based on and reliant on particular sorts of relationships in the field, um, relate broader um, social relationships with funders, with stakeholders, and so on and so forth. But then these longer term um, scholarly relationships in terms of the, the sorts of bodies of knowledge that we're engaging with and so on and so forth. So for me, I think that um, what is really, really important to capture at the same time as the context of our participants it's the context of the research itself, because then what we're able to do is to gain an understanding, you know, retrospectively of how and why we were thinking at a given moment in time. Um, we might think, oh, yeah, well, we're asking those questions from the outset. But if we're able to go back, we can see that we were asking them in completely different ways. Why? What has been this con the consequences of our research engagement that has encouraged us or to pushed us in, in different sorts of academic directions so that we ask those questions but in very different sorts of ways. So for me a big thing I've mentioned it earlier, fieldwork diary, get as many of those as you can. And finally I would just point to some resources. Um, Neve Moore has written about anonymization um, and the complexities of that. Also um, Bren Neal has written about that amongst lots of other people but those are sort of standout texts. And again, on the Timescapes Archive website, Bren Neal has developed um, a big document um, which contains um, oodles of information about how to manage and prepare a data set, whether or not for archiving, but when it's QL, what you really need to bear in, in, in mind, and all the sorts of complexities around that, how to gain consent in QL research. It's different than, in, say, in a one-off. Um, research study, how you might want to gain consent for archiving, for reuse, um, and those sorts of things. And, and that's important in QL where team members may change over time, where funders might change over time, and people say 10 years down the line are going back to an original um, data set and they're completely different researchers, but there are some forms of continuity um, in that research endeavour and that research team. So that's on the Timescapes Archive website for download. Back to you, Andrew. How do you deal with attrition or prepare for that? So I think you prepare for it by anticipating it, by expecting it. Um, particularly in dementia, I think uh, you have to anticipate that not everybody will be able to take part in your research all the way through. Uh, for lots of reasons, you know, we had participants who perhaps became um, unwell, who became more poorly, who some of their symptoms of dementia meant that when we re-engaged with them or wanted to revisit them, it wasn't possible for them to take part. I think you also um, you know, have to prepare, certainly if you're working with people who are perhaps older, that, you know, um, some participants had died, for example, and you know you have to prepare for these sorts of things this is, is this is the stuff of life uh, so when it comes to how do you deal with attrition I think one of the things I would say and I've answered this slightly differently to what you might have expected is to prepare yourself for the changes that you will experience as a researcher and prepare yourself to experience change in participants 
Uh, and these might be changes that participants themselves are not able to recognize fully, but which those people around them will um, recognize. So there is an there's emotion work involved when we start to think about what is attrition. More practically, of course, the advice is, well, you could recruit more people at the start than you want at the end. That's such a mechanistic idea, but you know, there is a practical use to that kind of thing. You know, the other thing to think about is what, what constitutes data for you? You know, is it actually the number of people that you want to stick with? Or actually, is it more about the richness and the depth of understanding that you want? And so actually, is it possible if some people could no longer take part? Or actually, in our case, we had to take the decision on behalf of other people that however much we would have liked them to have continued to participate in the research. We felt that they perhaps were just not able you know, to do so. We had to take the decision on other people's behalf, not to involve them as the work goes forward. It's about thinking through, well, what can we do with the material we've already got? You know, repeated re-engagement with people gives you such a, a rich um, amount of material that even if not all our participants were with us, through each round of data collection, we could still understand something of the longitudinal quality of their life. And I think the other thing to think about is that there's been lots of talk of relationships and relationships change. And relationships also we found changed with, um, with friends, family members, supporters, with people we might label as a gatekeeper will also change over time. So the importance of that relationship building and maintenance work is also to enable in a way um, ongoing engagement for people. And I think also it's about dealing with attrition in terms of making sure your methods are flexible enough to be altered. Um, I think one of the real advantages of qualitative work, regardless of whether it's longitudinal or not, is that you can actually change it, you know, according to the circumstances you find yourself in. And certainly when you're working with people living with dementia over a period of time, being able to adapt something very quickly, you know, in the moment, in response to what people are telling you that they could do or can't do, is a really important way of, um, dealing with this you know this, this peculiar word attrition and then the last thing i would say is in terms of dealing with attrition is is remember that attrition is itself a kind of information about life you know understanding why people can't continue or take part in your research in the way you'd initially planned is just as important as you know people being able to continue to be involved repeating your methods over time attrition is you know, attrition is just a scientific term for life and stuff that happens that means future plans can't be followed through. Really useful information and something I will consider in the future if I can get my, my brain to be mathematical enough to cost it all. <laughs> so what have we learned so far? We've learned about the importance of continuity about the importance of relationships temporality the the passage of time and the things that change and more importantly we've learned that we've learned that costing is really really difficult so in this final part of the show we're going to discuss the common pitfalls challenges and how to avoid them i get the feeling this method can be extremely challenging you clearly need to think ahead get the design of the study right and while we haven't discussed this much today well i have cost is definitely a factor. Andrew, can you tell us what challenges you came across in delivering your research and what might you do differently? So all research has got challenges and I, you know, I don't want people to listen and think, oh, QL is too hard, it's too challenging, I don't think I'll bother, I think I'll do cross-sectional work instead, it seems more straightforward. So I don't want it to be a, a long list of challenges. Um, I suppose I'm thinking in a dementia context, uh, then you need to really think about relationships, not just with your participant, but all those other individuals around them. Uh, I think you also need to think about what it means to re-engage with an individual. Re-engagement is not just about returning with the same questions you want to ask, or, you know, kind of talked about the, the complexity of that. 
But actually, we found as we returned to people, we were oftentimes returning to, we were returning to people who were in very different circumstances. And it's about being mindful of that and being really open to uh, what you might return to. Yes, there might be clues in your existing data set about the kinds of futures that you are returning to people in. But actually, you can never really know for sure. So also, it's about being really flexible and open to making changes. It's about ensuring that people can participate in research in ways that's meaningful and authentic to them, but also that will provide you with sufficient information to help you to continue to understand um, the, the life that they're in. And that can sometimes be making really difficult decisions about how you involve people going forward. And I also think that there are some challenges in terms of thinking about the time to analyze all your material throughout the course of a project. You can't just gather all your data and then hopefully spend the last 12 months analyzing everything and writing it up and there's your answer. It, I really learned quickly that that's never going to work. Uh, I think sometimes you forget in the thrill and the rush and the busyness of gathering your data that actually there is an analytical um, quest here. There are longitudinal questions. There are questions about time you're trying to answer. But also don't forget that there are also cross-sectional questions that you also will be perhaps pursuing within each round of data collection. Uh, but overall, when you look back on a, a QL project, you need to be able to say something about time, whatever that is, not just say, I visited several people at different points, and this is what was happening at those key points. And I think the other challenge that we've certainly faced, and I don't have any solution to this, is to be really careful of um, what I want to term causality, understanding causality. So it was so tempting for us to think, oh, there have been these changes in people's lives. These people are experiencing their neighborhoods differently because of dementia and changes that have happened with their diagnosis. When in reality, those changes are a result of all sorts of other things that are going on in the mix. But you can only really understand all that other stuff that's going on if you've designed your study and if you've got enough um, confidence in your methods to be able to look beyond dementia as a condition to try to understand the whole messy business of life that takes place around it. So the last challenge is about how do you attribute explanation to the changes that you witness and the continuity as well. That's brilliant. That's really useful. It's, it's interesting to think that, well, there's the, in any life, in, in, in life in general, there's so much going on. And it's, it's not always possible to capture every aspect of it. And I think presuming that you could would be um, overconfident, perhaps. Um, Karen, do you have any other common pitfalls and how to avoid them? Well, I'd come in here, actually. And I think that often social sciences research is trying to engage with the intersection between history and biography. And um, for me, I think that um, one-off interviews are far more challenging to answer those sorts of questions than qualitative longitudinal um, research methods. So for me, I think that in actual fact, rather than constraining people or providing them with lots and lots of challenges, um, I think that QL methods are, are quite liberating because what they do allow us to do is, is to find something out from people. We've not spoken to them before. We might have looked at lots of other research, but we've spoken to these particular people. They've told us stuff that was quite unexpected. We didn't know that before it's it, it's new and um so what we're then able to do in qualitative research uh, qualitative longitudinal research is to sit down and think well why might this be unexpected um what is it that we didn't know before that they're now telling us um what is it about their lives that we didn't particularly anticipate it's, it, this is new um, and why are they thinking in those particular ways and so, of course, QL allows us to go back and then ask those questions. You know, we ask people to provide those explanations for us in qualitative research. E effectively, what we do is we ask people to provide theory for us to theorise about their lives. These are what these narratives are. You know, my, my life is working out. It worked. It did this. This happened because of these sorts of situations. 
I think that our participants, our participants provide sociological explanation in particular ways. You know, that sociology isn't something that's solely a discipline that's, you know, contained by sociologists. Um, you know, this is, it's, it's a social dialogue um, and narrative and, and social historical um, discipline um, and people in their everyday lives you know, utilise sociological explanation in order to account of the ways in which their lives have unfolded. So qualitative longitudinal methods allow us to track um, those, those changes in people's explanations and map them across, uh, um, onto particular historical um, um, developments um, and, and, and processes and facilitate, I think, um, I would like to argue for richer, very you know, very complex forms of of um, theoretical engagement. One question to both of you: I think our listeners will now have a pretty good understanding of this methodological approach. But if you could give a one sentence piece of advice to anyone considering QL as a method, what would that be? I'll, I'll put you on the spot first, Andrew. First of all, don't think that you need a very long period of time to do QL work. QL can be done over a period of days, not necessarily years. And actually, my second piece of advice is to talk to other people, other researchers, other PhD students, other academics, about what it is like to actually do QL, in addition to reading all the excellent you know, resources that, that are available. Karen? I think Andrew's covered all the bases. I mean, mine, my, 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 my quick one sentence would have been go and read, you know, have a look at what other people have, have done. Choosing would be based on what really excited you in the existing literature. What, what are the questions that are absolutely burning for you? And when you read somebody else's work and you thought, oh my gosh, that's amazing. Um, think about why that is. What, what sorts of possibilities and opportunities did that work offer um, that you yourself would like to um, utilise in your own research? I think that's a fantastic piece of advice there, Karen. And actually, I'll do a very quick shout out to one of my undergraduate teachers, um, Dawn Goodall, who gave me the advice when I was choosing a subject to said, pick something that really annoys you because you'll never let it go. <laughs> and I thought that was a very good piece of advice. So this has been really helpful. I mean, in dementia, longitudinal qualitative research is so important, particularly when combined with health information as we get a window into understanding the disease, how it progresses, how it affects people in their lives and, and how that changes over time. From that, you can ensure you put the right support into place and you can prepare and the data can help inform drug trials and all sorts of other work. So, right, time for our final segment. I'm going to give our expert, Karin, one minute to tell our listeners what they should go away and read to further their knowledge on this method. Karin, over to you. I'm starting the clock now. Um, we'll obviously start with Bren Neal. Um, she's written a couple of brilliant books over the last couple of years, Craft of Qualitative Longitudinal Research, and also What is Qualitative Longitudinal Research? If you want to start with the What is book, it's very short, pithy, fantastic. The um, other work that I think I would direct you towards is work by Johnny L. Sal Saldana. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing his name correctly, but he, he, he wrote a very seminal piece. Um, work by um, Janet Holland, Rachel Thompson, um, and Sheila Henderson, they, they wrote um, a lot of very groundbreaking um, papers and reports on, on QL. And I would also direct you towards online resource. Um, it's called Big QLR. Um, it was Ros Edwards, Lynn Jamieson, um, Susie Weller and Emma Davidson. Um, it was part of their NCRM funded work in developing um, uh, big qualitative um, methods, big qual, um, but it contains within it blogs by people from all over the world around using qualitative longitudinal research methodology. 
And obviously I'm going to give a plug again for the Timescapes Archive website, because seriously, all these people produce papers and reports um, for, for the, they're all part of Timescapes, they, they produce reports for that. So um, wealth of resources, please just go and have a look. Fantastic. Thank you so much. I'm afraid that's all we have time for today. So let me say a huge thank you to our wonderful guests who are both very much sharing the single chair in the expert corner. From the University of Leeds, we have the awesome Dr. Karen Hughes. And from the University of Salford, the breathtaking Professor Andrew Clark. So thank you so much for coming. Join me again tomorrow as we bounce our way headlong into a method that I know extremely little about multi-level modeling that makes me think of lego and it's not a technique you use on minecraft thank you all very much for listening